0: Good morning everyone, if we have not met, my name's Matt Fuller, I'm uh, vicar here, and that is, um, well, I don't know how you feel when all that is, is read, but here is good news, here is kindness of the Lord that we need. Let me um, lead us in prayer. This be... Our great God and Father, we know that uh, we live in a world which is very confused about the nature of um, sex and marriage and relationships. We ourselves, we're distorted beings, all of us, none of us are clear uh, none of us think clearly or purely. Father, as we come to a sensitive passage in your word, would we be willing once again to submit ourselves to your truth, to uh, talk kindly, patiently with one another about how this works out and applies in our marriages and our church family. Father, give us receptive hearts. Give us kindness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us this morning then, we're in uh, this letter written to uh, the church at Corinth, and uh, this section, chapters 5 to 7 in particular, Paul is responding to uh, questions that the church had on um, sexual matters. So you see, chapter 7, verse 1, now, for the matters you wrote about, uh, quotes them, you said, oh, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, well, let me comment on that. And a number of times in this section, and indeed into chapter 8 and 10, different questions, he's responding to issues that have been raised up. So here then is a section all about sex. It began last week, and here then it's about sexual relationships within marriage. Now, I really don't know how you personally felt when it was read. Of course, I'm highly conscious. I'm speaking to a room where there are unhappy marriages. And unhappy singleness, where there are people who have been abandoned by their spouses, where people as children were abandoned by their parents, where many would have seen their parents divorce and separate. Here's a group of us where some are grieving related issues of childlessness or miscarriage, or sickness that prevents sexual relations. And there's lots of pain. Which is why, of course, the section is here in the Scriptures to try and help us in our pain. To pick us up where we were last time, if you were here uh, at the end of um, chapter 6, Paul has declared, uh, you're not your own, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And uh, chapter 7 continues that theme, you need to honor God with your body, whether you're single or you're married, and in utterly simplistic terms, if you're married, you honor God with your body by having frequent sex within your marriage, and if you're single, you honor God with your body by abstaining from sex. Now that's a headline that straight away doesn't cause huge glee to many in the room. But be patient. Be patient please. This week in the first half of the chapter, primarily it's issues relating to marriage, uh, and next week primarily related to singleness. But we do need to hold them together, really, but uh, no time to do them all in one morning. Of course, you turn to this text, and, and Paul is then, he's addressing questions that the Corinthian church has asked. They're probably not the questions that we would naturally ask. They're different. There's some stuff going on in Corinth that we don't quite get. There's a context that we haven't got all of. So, uh, looking just ahead to next week, chapter seven and verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. So if you're single, remain single. If you're married, you remain. But this issue of remain in the state that you're in, it comes up five times. five times in the chapter, sorry. Five times in the chapter. Um, what is the present crisis? We don't know. We don't quite know everything that's coming from their side. We're just listening in on Paul's side of the telephone conversation. And of course, our culture is a little bit different in some ways. I... um, I think, it was, uh, I think it was Phil gave me this book to read. But anyway, Esther Perel, um, she's a best-selling uh, author, sex therapist now, relationship therapist, all over, TED Talks, she's done numerous ones, uh, New York Times bestseller. Anyway, her most recent book, The, the State of Affairs, it's, there's lots of stuff which is interesting in here, but here's her summary of where we're at culturally. What do you make of this? Is this a fair summary? She says it this way. We used to marry... And then have sex for the first time. Now we marry and stop having sex with others. We used to think monogamy meant one person for life. Now we see monogamy as just one person at a time. It used to be till death us do part. Today you marry until love dies. Is that a fair summary? There's lots of truth in that, I think, of our current culture. But you come to a text such as this, and in the end, men and women, we remain sexual beings and fallen ones. And so we need to hear what Paul says. The question they're asking then is there in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, from the matters you wrote about, quote, you said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Mm. Literally, I've put it on the sheets. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now I think it unlikely that the Corinthians are asking, Paul, is it good to stop having sex altogether? I think in the context that's unlikely. Uh, Flown from chapter six, they've been having sex all over the place, sex outside of marriage. What is going, what actually is the question they're asking? Well, one striking thing about the way this is phrased, chapter seven, verse one, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. That's unusual in this chapter. Every other issue, He stresses the reciprocal nature of the relationships, man and woman. So verse 3, husband should fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise wife to the husband. Verse 10, to the married. Here's the command. A wife must not separate from her husband. Verse 11, husband not from his wife. Verse 12, if a Christian brother has a wife who's not a believer, she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Thirteen, woman, just the same. Every time he mentions men and women in this chapter, it's men and women the same, men and women the same. Here in chapter 7, verse 1, it's different. Okay. The other interesting thing is that all the research into the time would suggest that this verb, to touch a woman, it's slang, it's idiom. If you were writing it today, you'd translate it something like, is it good not for a man to shag a woman? Forgive me. It's cheap language. What are the Corinthians asking? They're saying, oh, okay, Paul, you've said sex is only for marriage. So just want to check on that. So, so men aren't allowed to go and just gratify their lusts elsewhere. Now, That might, not, that might seem a strange question to us. But in the Roman culture of the time, if you're married, you visited your wife and a man to have children, and you'd have a mistress, and you'd have sex with your slaves. That would be normal for a Roman citizen. So they're saying, oh, we've got to stop all that. So just to clarify, you're really saying the only way of having sex is in marriage. Because, I mean, every bloke I know goes off and bangs his mistress or a servant girl. Just, sorry, just so we're clear, that, that's all got to go, has it? Uh, yes, yes, only one place for sex, inside marriage with your spouse, that's it. So I think that is the question that's being asked, that has the headline over, over the chapter. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? That's why it's one way, just man to woman, not the reciprocal nature as in the rest of the chapter. Four sections, we'll work through them. There isn't time to do any of them justice, really. But uh, hopefully we'll get clear on what they mean. First, then, in verses 2 to 7, if you're married, don't cheat your spouse. It's good for a man not to, have, not to touch a woman, is that right? Okay, first answer, verse 2. Since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Look, we've just spoken about this in chapter six. There is sexual immorality. Some of you are sleeping with prostitutes. You've become Christians, but you haven't clocked. That's a no-no now. Some of you are still sleeping with your staff. You haven't, that's a no-no now. But you've got to have sex in your marriage. That's the place for sex. That is the legitimate place to express that desire that you might have. The gist of these verses is, the way for marriage to avoid sexual immorality is to have regular sex. Now you might think it isn't expressed in the most romantic of fashions. Verse three, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. You know, Reporting for duty um, doesn't sort of sound particularly exciting or romantic, but it is a duty. It's very striking the language he uses, verse 5, don't deprive each other. This language, this verb deprive, it's cheat or defraud. If you turn back a page, it's the same verb he used in lawsuits. So chapter 6, verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong. You're defrauding your brothers legally. It's the same verb here in chapter 7, verse 5. Don't defraud, don't cheat. It's the same verb that James uses um, when he's talking about chapter 5, James chapter 5. uh, Some employers are defrauding their staff of their wages. They're cheating. You're not giving what you've promised to give, is Paul's point. Here is a recognition that when you marry... The day you stand at the front of church on your wedding day, you promise, amongst other things, to have regular sex with your spouse. You say, yes, we become one flesh. It's not just physical, but it is, of course, physical. You say within the vows, with my body, I honor you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. That's not just your bank account, that's you. So it's striking, the modern idiom that we have, of course, to cheat on a spouse is to have an extramarital affair. In Paul's language, to cheat on your spouse is to deprive them of sex. That's cheating. So, of course, this can go wrong, I guess, in broadly, simplistically two ways. Here's the obvious one he's mentioning. Don't deprive your spouse of sex. Paul says don't do it. Verse five: Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, if your prayer life is 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 you know you just, if that's the reason you're not having sex, well, that's okay, but only for a short time. But don't deprive each other. It's got to be by mutual consent. I think that's interesting. Paul is no prude. He's expecting that men and married uh, married couples they're talking about how regularly they're having sex. Are We having enough sex? Well, yeah, it's pretty good, but I think we should have a time off this week to pray every night. Okay, let's do it, but no longer... I mean, they're having a conversation about it, probably more than most of us would do. So on the one hand, there's depriving your spouse of sex. The other mistake, of course, would be to think you can demand sex. The obligation here is to give love. You can't demand it. Verse 4... The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. It's a gift she gives. Verse 4, in the same way the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It's a gift. You can't demand it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Along with the promise on your wedding day to have sex is the promise, of course, that you'll love your spouse in sickness and in health for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. And there are seasons in every marriage where sex is incredibly hard. Physical difficulties, emotional blockages, sometimes mechanical problems. I can think of two couples who married, and they didn't consummate their marriage for over five years. just didn't work. You might think, how does it not work? It didn't work. But they're too embarrassed to do anything about it. Didn't tell anyone, felt shame for five years. Oh, there are problems sometimes. You can plenty run into problems later on, trying for children after having children, You are never allowed to demand sex. You are commanded to be sensitive. And remember your vows to one another. Will you love her, him? Will you comfort her, honor and protect her, forsaking all others? Be faithful to her, him, as long as you both shall live. But on your wedding day, you promise to serve one another with your body. What does that mean for you? I don't know. Do you enjoy talking about this with your spouse? I think you're rare. So find the time. A bottle of wine. Open it. Drink it. Then talk about it. (laughs) Not for all of you, but you know. Find the space. Because regular sex is part of a healthy marriage. And infrequent sex means... You're cheating one another. You're depriving the marriage of an emotional connection it needs. So if you're married, don't cheat your spouse. Let's move on. If you're a couple. If you're a couple, marry rather than burn." Uh, it's sort of verse seven it sort of moves between these sections. So verse seven, Paul can say, "I wish that all of you were as I am." But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that gift. Is he saying single or married? I think he's meaning content in whatever situation you're in. But certainly, verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than burn with passion. Hmm. Verse 8, it's good for them to stay unmarried. Okay, Paul, should should everyone remain single like you were single? No, you may want to consider it. But verse 9, if you can't control themselves, marry. Seriously? What? The, The only reason for these guys to get married is because they're sinning? That doesn't sound right. Well, no. If marriage was only a refuge from burning with sexual passion and all of us should have got married about 14 or 15, probably, (laughs) to the first person we lusted over, and that probably wouldn't have been ideal for any of us. That would have been a terrible mistake. It's not quite as simplistic as that, of course. The Bible is clear that marriage has many purposes. It's for companionship in our work, Genesis 1. It's for bringing up children, Genesis 1. It's for pleasure, Song of Songs. It's for spurring one another on to become like Christ, Ephesians 5. It's a good gift. What's he talking about? Well, verse 9 doesn't sort of come up, Perfectly in the translation. But verse 9, literally, if they do not control themselves, present tense, they should marry. Verse 9 is describing an ongoing situation. If there are a couple, dating maybe in our language, and they do not control themselves, well, maybe it's time for that situation to end and they should just marry. Now, again, the Bible would have more to say than just that. If you're dating and, and sexually active, well, chapter 6 would just say, flee. Stop it. Repent. You, you, how about dating and being pure? How about giving that a go, hey? That would be much better. But if you're persuaded, you know, if you think like, you're probably going to, you know, you, actually, I'm going to marry this person, well, just get on with it. That's his advice here. To the dating couple, if you know you're going to get married, well, get on with it, rather than immorality. If you find yourself in that scenario, I suggest strongly you get wisdom from others. There are plenty of steps before this. Okay? Stop it. Repent. But maybe it's time to get on and get married. Third little group he addresses. Look, if you're a Christian, if you're a married Christian... Don't divorce for another, verses 10 and 11. If you're a married Christian, don't divorce for another. Verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Well, Jesus spoke a lot about divorce. That's what he's talking about there. Mark 10, Matthew 19, Matthew 5, plenty of places Jesus speaks about marriage and divorce. So Paul just says, look, I'm just reminding you of what Jesus said here. Verse 10, a wife must not separate from her husband. Don't divorce. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And her husband, it's the same. Her husband mustn't divorce his wife either. Don't divorce. But if you do, you cannot remarry. So presumably the context here is that Someone is having an adulterous affair and thinks, Well, if I get a divorce, I can just marry this person, I can legitimize my adultery. No, you cannot, that is not an option. There is no no fault divorce in the Bible, it doesn't exist. If you divorce, you're single. You see, it's a pretty binary choice. He gives verse 11. If you get a divorce, two choices you either remain unmarried or you get reconciled to the husband. Those are your choices. Marrying a new person, not an option. Well, that's simple. Any exceptions? Yes. (laughs) Uh, Not that he goes into detail here. There are two exceptions in the Bible. The first would be that Jesus declares, again, you can read it, Matthew 19, verse 9, that adultery breaks a marriage bond. And so anyone, Jesus speaking, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, I think adultery in that context, and marries another woman, commits adultery. There is something about the nature of adultery that breaks a covenant. It breaks an expression of how God treats his people. That adultery can cause a marriage, to end and it may be possible to remarry afterwards. Not always, not straightforward. The other exception he gives is in in verse 15, we'll come to that in a moment. His point here really is that divorce is a last resort. It should be very rare. You can't declare that a marriage has gone stale, that you can't get on with one another anymore. That is not grounds for divorce. To do that is sinful. You can't remarry in those conditions. The Church of England is um, is in a bit of a pickle, really. You'd say about sexual ethics, but they get this right. I am not legally allowed to remarry someone who's been divorced. I can't do it. I have to fill in large forms and get the permission of the bishop. Yeah, you know, two people come, I'm allowed to legally marry them. Uh, one is a divorcee, I'm not allowed. There's a sort of check upon that. <coughs> Since it's a healthy thing, biblically. Now, one other exception, it's just, or one other thing to, to throw in the mix, I guess. It, so Paul's point here is that marriage should be preserved wherever is possible. And you, you know, you've got to hold on to that. At the same time, you do have to hold on to another truth, The Bible would say you've got to protect the vulnerable. There are some here who've been in families where they've witnessed violence from their father to their mother, or they themselves have experienced violence at the hand of their husbands and have been given the advice by Christian ministers the Bible says you have to stay. I want to be very clear that is horrific advice and is condoning sin and encouraging wickedness there are occasions and there will not be many but there are occasions where to protect the vulnerable you would say leave your marriage they are rare but sometimes that is right. Normally, you do whatever you can to preserve a marriage. Oh, look, for most of us, would say, you yeah, know, no violence. It's quite hard work, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's quite hard work. Does it get easier over time? Mm-hmm. Well, ebbs and flows, I think, most would say. Uh, good days, bad days, good decades, bad decades. And... and um, But do what it takes, says Paul, within reason. Work hard to stick at your marriage. Most of us are tempted at one point to think we want to get out. I think most people have that experience. Many will be tempted to wander in an affair. I think, don't do it. If you're a married Christian, you don't divorce not for another. And then the last group is slightly different. If you've married a non-Christian, don't divorce them, would be the last comment in verses 12 to 16. Paul says this, verse 12 then, to the rest of those who are married. To the rest, I say this, because actually I, not the Lord, because Jesus didn't talk about the scenario when perhaps there's a couple and uh, uh, one of them becomes a Christian, and then what does he or she do then? Uh, are they being corrupted, polluted by their spouse? Um, no. No, you stick with them. So verse 12, to the rest I say this, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Here seems to be the issue verse 14. The, the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through his wife, Sorry, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife sanctified through her believing husband. You're not defiled, seems to be the idea in Corinth, in any sense. Stick with it. Stick with your spouse. Verse 15 seems, to my mind, to be a little bit of a tangent. Oh, look, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, that's that's what happens. Let it be so. The Christian brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. I think, therefore, they are free to remarry. But the main point, back to the main point, God has called us to live in peace. So stick with your spouse. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't know. Some here would know. My mother became a Christian in her mid-60s. My parents, neither of them are Christian believers. My mother became a Christian in her mid-60s. And about five years later, my father was unwell. He had contracted cancer. He was always very hostile to the Christian faith. I mean, I'd try to speak to him. He would physically say, you carry on this conversation, I exit the room. And he did. That's how we progressed for, or didn't progress for years. But uh, five years after my mother became a Christian, dad, contracted cancer, and for the last two years of his life, she was pretty wonderful in nursing him until his death. And in the last few months of his life, he said, my father, to me, your mother has changed since she called herself a Christian. I don't think she could have coped in the way she's coped or been kind in the way she's been kind. Go on, then. Tell me about your Christianity and a magnificent testimony to kindness, faithfulness. And so for the last few months of his life, my father let me read the Bible with him. And I hope hope they will be reconciled in glory. You don't know, husband. You don't know, wife, whether through you your spouse will be saved. You don't know. So stick with it. If you've married a non-Christian, don't divorce them. So look, honor God with your bodies. He has purchased them. They're not ours to use selfishly. We are to serve with them. Got to be realistic about marriage, of course. We go back to, um, I don't think this one's on the screen, but let me go back to Esther Perel. She's asked, um, people ask me all the time, why are divorce rates so high? She's not a Christian, she's just a secular writer. Listen to her language. Relationships are crumbling under the weight of people's expectations. He or she has to be your passionate lover, your intellectual equal, the best parent, your best friend, and be able to maintain a sense of mystery and awe and transcendence besides. I deliberately use religious language. For in the 21st century, the soulmate is what people used to seek out in religion. And the expectation is crushing. Isn't that interesting? She's not a Christian. But she says, you know, people used to have a sort of whole variety. People used to have friends. Wow. And a marriage and their faith in God and, and a whole, and work. And now it's just, it sort of collapses, all expectations into one thing. The one can't do that. No individual can withstand that. Very striking. You have to be realistic about marriage. Marriages are not Jesus. They will disappoint us when he will not. But serving your spouse within marriage with your body, that is one way we honour the Lord. It's not the only way, of course, but it is one way we honour the Lord. He's also placed us in a church family. We honour him by caring for one another, caring for the whole family. but we do honour God with our bodies. Perhaps some of us do need to be encouraged, though. We looked last time, chapter 6 and verse 11, because we've all made mistakes. And so the whole section begins with this wonderful truth. Chapter 6, verse 11. Oh, look, some of you were sexually immoral, amongst other things, but you were washed you are sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's forgiveness from the Lord. There needs to be forgiveness in your marriages. Forgiveness of for the marriage by the singles and the singles by the marriage. And we have another go at serving the Lord without bodies, but honoring him. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, along with the truth of your word, we pray you would be at work within us. Persuading us of this truth if we're struggling. Helping us to live your way if we're finding it hard. Help us to bear with others. Be it we find our spouses hard work. Be it we find some of our friends talking about their marriages really hard work. Be it we find complaints from others really hard work. Help us. Father, how we need one another. For those here this morning who are married, we pray you'd help us to gently, kindly, but honestly work this out in our marriages. Father, for overall, for us as a church family, would we honor one another with our bodies as well as every part of our lives. Help us to do that wisely, we pray.